Sound of History podcast. My name is Nick. My name is Mika. And this is a podcast where I attempt to teach music history to my wife. And I pay varying amounts of attention. <laughs> it varies from average to no attention. That's our range here. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll start off with your favorite segment. Mika is the host now. Woo! Goodness. <laughs> It's a new jingle now. <laughs> it's like all the different versions of the theme song, like uh, at the end of um, Some Good News, how they like played the guy who does the office theme song in all of the different genres. Yep. This is the same thing, but okay. worse. <laughs> <laughs> You're just running through all the musical genres of your yes. intro. Okay. That That's was fine. I don't know what that was. That was um, like crunk. Crunk. <laughs> okay. Should we keep with that style? No. I'm gonna, no we yeah, should not. I'm glad you said no because I was like, I'm not going to do it no matter <laughs> what you say. <laughs> I know no one listens, but like still. <laughs> um, okay, okay, okay. Um, welcome to Mika is the host now. I know it's everyone's favorite segment, just like it's my favorite segment. Uh, I would like today to talk about dancing around your living room and listening to a song and just dancing like crazy and annoying your husband. It's a real fun time. <laughs> really put me in a good mood. Um, so this is just telling yeah. me that you had nothing planned for this. No, <laughs> I thought about things. My other plug is Princess Bride that I've been trying okay. to get you to watch forever. And we're going to watch it tomorrow, if not tonight. It is a classic. It is amazing. And you will love it. You will. Are you done with your segment now? Am I ever really done? <laughs> <laughs> yes, because eventually I have to be the main host. Unless you want to try and talk about our topic today I on your would. own with no background information. I really would. Flip the computer my way, bro. No. <laughs> you have to do it without the script. What? You don't <laughs> have to do it without the script. Well, I wrote the script. So? so? You can write your own script real quick and then do it on that. Okay. <laughs> Okay. We will now take a five-minute break while I write a script because Mika is the host now. No, Mika is no longer the Mika's host now. Mika is the host now. <laughs> We're getting into the show. This is the show. <laughs> this is your show. Your show is done. Now we're into the show. Why don't I have more time? Yeah, I need okay. to make a better contract. Dang. No, you just need to come up with more things to talk about. Challenge accepted. Okay. <laughs> Every so. single thing that I find entertaining... This coming week is going to t <laughs> it's going to take up like thirty minutes oh of this good. podcast. I mean, good because the next episode is crooners, and that one's pretty I short. I love crooners, except for the fact that we're not going to talk about all my favorite crooners. All your favorite crooners. I have multiple. Yeah, but I've only told you one. We're not talking about. I don't know. I just assume that we're not talking about. We're anyone. not. We're talking about see? like the early there crooners you that See? you probably don't know as I well, know, but they're still they're good. All from the same like group. Well, same time period. Okay. What have we been talking about the past couple weeks? Swing. Yes. And before that. Jazz. Yes. Want to give us like very, very brief recaps of jazz and stuff. Don't really worry about swing because we're kind of going back to jazz for a little bit. Oh, okay. Um, jazz makes you want to dance. That's the only <laughs> thing that I've taken from the past <laughs> like a month and a half. It's <laughs> probably also your improvised, definition of swing too. Yes. Improvised and it makes you want to dance and move around and do a little jiggle. <laughs> And it's high energy. 
Yeah. Young people. Alcohol. Louis Armstrong. clubs. They're called sporting clubs. Okay. <laughs> well, today we're doing another bonus episode. Woo-hoo. Our second bonus episode. And it's about a guy that, like, I've always known about. Well, not always, but, like, since college I've known about him. And we've mentioned him a few times in this podcast. But when we were, like, in his time period, I didn't really feel the need to talk about him all that much since he's... He's not primarily known as a singer. He's like an entertainer in general. So we're kind of focusing on music. So I kind of just brushed by him a little bit. But since we're talking about crooners next, at the time I wrote the script, not anymore, but I was reading a biography about Bing Crosby that kept talking about how important this guy was to jazz vocalists in general, but especially Bing Crosby and how he kind of like influenced that whole genre, which is crooners to some extent. So, as we're going into crooners, I feel like it's important to talk about, like, the biggest inspiration to them. And he was one of the most famous and important entertainers of the early 1900s. So, it kind of feels necessary to share his story. So, we're going to be talking about Al Jolson. What? No way! (laughs) I love him! I'm going to guess you don't know anything about Al Jolson. His name is Al, like Big Al or like Alfred. Um, he he likes to just be the center of attention, but he was like really cool. I mean, that is he does he did like to be the center of attention. I don't think you're gonna find him all that cool. Oh, I forgot that this is a dude that you said I wouldn't like. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know how you'll feel about him. I don't think you'll like a lot about him. I think that you have a pretty good guess as to how I respond to things. Yeah, there's just like, there's two things that I think you're not going to like about him. Is he a racist and misogynist? Is is that the two things? N- that's n- sort of. Okay, the well first, there we go. Well, the first <laughs> one, the first one's that he performed a lot in blackface. All right, so yes, racist, <laughs> check mark. I'm... I don't know that he was a misogynist, but he probably was, considering the time period. And that wasn't the only two. It, the other thing was that he was like an attention hog on the stage, and it was kind of disrespectful to his fellow performers. And center sometimes. of attention. Look at me. I am exactly. On a That's roll why I thought today. you said that because I've mentioned that before. No, I just you know I don't know these things. Regardless, Jolson was, according to everyone, one of the most prominent figures in the entertainment industry. He was the lead actor in the first film with sound. He was a massive performer on vaudeville circuits. Honestly, being the lead actor in the first film with sound, I mean, I can see why he'd get a big head. (laughs) Yeah, but he had a big head before that. Okay. But, I mean, he kind of earned it. Like, we'll get there. Okay. He He did it all, basically, during his time. But today, instead of being treated as a hero and legend of the entertainment industry, he is mostly looked at with derision and hostility. Because he's a sucky person. <laughs> Due primarily to his consistent use of blackface in his routines. Because he's a sucky person. <laughs> he had other personal issues as well, like we all do, but his use of blackface has been completely unforgiven, and most modern people do not like him because of it. Because he's a sucky person. <laughs> so many other stars of the day used blackface, including Bing Crosby and Shirley Don't Temple. Don't tell me that. Yeah. Everyone used blackface. I didn't know that. Pre-1920, everyone used blackface. Not Shirley Temple. Yep, Shirley Temple from time to time. 
but none made it core to their performance like Al Jolson did. Like Al Jolson rarely ever performed out of blackface. I'm sorry. I need a second to process <laughs> this information. Part of me wants to look up. Did you say Bing? Yeah. Yeah. Part of me wants to look up Bing Crosby and blackface just because I don't believe you. But like I do. But also I just don't want to see that. But okay. if it's reality, like, holy cow. Bing Crosby, even in like the 30s, mid 30s, mid to late 30s, him and his family and friends just put on their own minstrel show because they missed minstrel shows. So they just like created and developed one. It's disappointing. It is. It's disappointing because you want your faves to be like, yeah, you know, the people who are progressive it, yeah. in, in, in understanding mm-hmm. the but value see, like, of people. In a lot of ways, like Bing Crosby was that too. Like he was inviting Louis Armstrong and all of these other, top african-american musicians onto his radio show and onto yeah. movies when people rejected yeah, him I remember you talking so about like that. he he was that it's just blackface was just a un- very very unfortunate staple of the entertainment industry at that time Ugh. so if you're in the entertainment industry chances are you're going to be around it what and it sucks that it was but what is that about our entertainment industry right now Ooh. i don't know i hope we came a long way but i don't know I you know you know there are problems and we're probably oh, just sure. too removed from it to like identify it. Uh, sexualization of women, maybe. Yeah. How you can't really be successful unless you are attractive and flaunting it, or at least it's way harder to be. Whatever, that's a tangent. Back to Al Jolson. Oh, but it's such a good tangent. <laughs> Al Jolson was born. Asa Yolson on May 26, 1886 in, oh boy, Shrednike, Shrednike, S-R-E-D-N-I-K-E, Shrednike, Lithuania. I don't know where that is. You know where Lithuania is? No. It's Russian area. He was the fifth and youngest child. His exact date of birth isn't known since they didn't keep unimportant records like that in Lithuania. <laughs> but he often said it was in 1885. I don't know where I got the first date then. What qualifies as important? <laughs> it's just not. <laughs> well, you're born. We don't need to know when. <laughs> you're here now. What do they care about? Making money. So basic. That's just so funny. His family moved to Washington, D.C. in 1894, where his father worked as a cantor, which is a singer of religious music in a synagogue. So, like, a Jewish worship leader. Jolson loved singing, but didn't want to follow in his father's footsteps, so he made money singing on street corners with his brother Harry. What? Harry got just such a normal name. <laughs> well, I mean, he pro- Harry probably changed it, too, because Al was Asa, so he probably changed it. Al and Harry would often spend what little money they had at the National Theater in D.C. where they saw a famous minstrel performer named Al Reeves. Is that where he got the name? Might have been. Or Al might just be like the English version of Asa or Asa, however you say it. I'm picturing him as the iguana from Dora the Explorer. (laughs) I just want you to know that. Okay. Her name is Asa and... And I don't know why. I know other people named Issa, but... I don't know anyone named Issa. 
he's now an iguana. All right, that's fair. A cartoon iguana <laughs> with eyelashes. Okay. Well, from then on. Singing on a street corner. <laughs> from then on, from seeing that minstrel performer, Al and Harry were completely smitten with the idea of performing, and they would work together quite a lot throughout their career. In 1900, after leaving D.C. for New York, Al made his first stage appearance in a play called Children of the Ghetto. What? It's probably Jewish ghetto. In the ghetto. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. In the ghetto. (laughs) In the spring of 1902, he accepted a job with a circus and spent some time traveling around with them and performing. The circus leader was impressed with his singing and gave him a job as a singer during the circus's Indian Medicine Sideshow segment. But by the end of the year, he was out of a job again. Okay. Did you say Indian Medicine? Yep. That was like, now that was the title of it, I'm guessing, because I have it in all caps here. It was an Indian Medicine Sideshow. It was like a segment of their circus performance. I don't know. <laughs> I don't really I'm know anything bas- else about it. W- what? <laughs> That's something I want to know more about. <laughs> Probably was not very flattering to Native Americans. I'll just say that. But by the end of the year, Al was out of a job. So he teamed up with his brother Harry and another guy named Palmer and started touring on vaudeville circuits under the name Jolson Palmer Jolson. They called their routine the Hebrew and the Cadet. <laughs> <laughs> There are three of them. Yeah, I don't. I mean, technically, both Jolsons are Hebrews, I guess. Yeah, okay, okay. I (laughs) I don't know. It's not the Hebrews and the Kudet. No, I see that. I get that. Okay. So Harry Jolson and Palmer did a comedy routine while Al sang. That was kind of their, like, the gist of their routine. At this point, vaudeville and live theater shows in general were on the decline thanks to a thing called Nickelodeons. Da, 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 da. These were the first indoor spaces designed specifically to show projected motion pictures. So is that where they got the name? Yeah, probably. As the name implied, you paid five cents to get in, and and they were normally set up in repurposed storefronts. What? I've never, I (laughs) never would have, I never would have made that connection. So these Nickelodeons got really... Got really popular between 1905 and 1915, meaning live shows like vaudeville took a hit. Harry Jolson got into a disagreement with the rest of the trio. He refused to take care of Palmer, who was in a wheelchair, and left the group because of it. Al and Palmer carried on as a duo for a little bit before mutually agreeing to part ways. Al always performed best as a solo artist anyway, so this kind of suited him well. His greatest skill as a performer was the way he played into the crowd. He was always great at reading, understanding, and molding his performances around a crowd. So he moved to California and set up shop in San Francisco to work on his solo act. During one performance, he decided to liven up his show a bit and performed in blackface with a southern accent. Yeah, let's just liven it up. Why not? I mean, at the time, that was how you livened it up because that was what they did. Because white people aren't entertaining enough. Yeah. And white people loved seeing this, like, other, what they thought was genuine other culture. They loved this, like, spectacle of it, not realizing that it was completely false and completely stereotyped and mean. Oh, these are so things that I will never fully understand. This is the song he sang 
on that show. This wasn't like that performance, but this is what he's saying. It's a very like Dixie inspired song. You are my posy. My blushing rosy. You are my heart's bouquet. You just say my heart can you hear the influences of Kroonin in this thing? Or can you yes, hear how we I got can. from this to Kroonin? I can, definitely. So Granted, this was recorded later, after Kroonin's already been, so you might have changed it a bit, it. but still. So that was the song he first originally sang in blackface. By 1908, he was hurting for money, and with a new wife to feed, he figured he might have better luck in New York, so he moved back there. A year later, he caught the attention of a guy named Lou Dockstader, who ran a really successful minstrel troupe called the Dockstader Minstrels. It's people in their names. I know, they're just not creative. But I mean, like, neither am I, so... <laughs> yeah, me <laughs> neither. <laughs> Judging by the name of this podcast. No, this is a great name. <laughs> because the host now is a sucky name, and also <laughs> the best name ever. That's fair, that is Took us a long time to get there. <laughs> Sorry, continue. The what's-his-face minstrels. Lou Dockstader. The Dockstader minstrels. So Lou offered him a job, which Al accepted. So Al became a professional blackface performer. And a minstrel group. Quick little story about Dockstader. Once in 1904, he was detained by the New York City Police Department for attempting to distribute a film intended to caricature President Roosevelt in the office he held. That that's was like, funny. that's the official charge. Doc Stater agreed to give them the film in order to have the charges dropped, but he didn't seem too concerned about it. He would go on to impersonate Roosevelt as a regular part of his show. That's funny. <laughs> it is. He's like the original YouTuber. <laughs> <laughs> I just saw that as like, when I was doing the research, I was like, I gotta throw in that little story because that's ridiculous. Wow. Never heard someone get arrested for attempting to distribute a caricature of a president. In 1911, Al Jolson crossed over to more legitimate entertainment, in air quotes. Okay. When he appeared in a Broadway show called La Belle Paris. It was produced by legendary theater owner Lee Schubert, who owned and operated several of the biggest theaters on Broadway. And it was a very big deal. Do you know anything about Lee Schubert? Uh, no, I don't. I didn't when I was writing this, but right now I'm reading a book about Broadway. And I didn't realize how insanely important the Schuberts were to Broadway. Broadway might not exist without them. Wow. Thank you, Schuberts. Because it was three brothers who took on this group of theater owners that was literally called the Syndicate that owned every major theater. And these three brothers were like, no, we don't care. We're just going to, we want to own our own. So we're just going to do it ourselves. And then like during the Great Depression, all these theaters were failing, but the Schuberts kept control of their theaters and they like pretty much them alone kept Broadway alive during the Great Depression. Thank you, Schubert's cool. They were kind of jerks in their own right to other of people. Of course they were. But you can't still, we anyone. wouldn't have Broadway without them. Ay, 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 ay. But we'll talk about that if we do a season on Broadway. When we do a season on Broadway. <laughs> like next year. So, uh, being in that show basically shot Jolson to stardom. According to Esquire magazine, Schubert... Esquire? 
Yeah. Esquire, like back then. Well, this might have been later. Okay. This might have been them writing in the future about this time. I don't know. I didn't write that down, and I wrote this episode a long time ago. Okay. Esquire magazine, quote, Schubert, impressed by Jolson's overpowering display of energy, booked him for La Belle Paris, a musical comedy that opened at the Winter Garden in 1911. Within a month, Jolson was a star. From then until 1926, when he retired from the stage, he could boast an unbroken series of smash hits, end quote. That's a pretty big deal. Yep. Apparently, his role in this play was singing a few Stephen Foster songs in blackface. Remember Stephen Foster? All right, I sure do. How can I forget? Episode number three. Stephen wasn't a bad guy. A few months later, Jolson was given a more prominent role in the next production at the Winter Garden Theater called Vera Violetta. That sounds right. All right, sure. He again appeared in blackface. Like LaBelle Paris, audiences loved Jolson, and the show was a huge hit. Audiences loved his style, and he applied a sort of loose jazz rhythm and put a lot of emotion into his performances. In a lot of ways, his performance in this play was kind of like the earliest predecessor of the crooning style. Here is Jolson singing his signature song from that play. It's called That Haunting Melody. Sounds romantic. Well, we'll see. Probably no bouquet of your heart or whatever. <laughs> Tell me, have you ever heard this melody? A melody that's made an awful hit with me. He doesn't look like his voice should come out of his voice. I don't know where I heard it. Keep in mind, like, while he's doing this stuff, he's something like 18 or 19 years old. Like, he's super young at this point. Because he was born in, like, 95, and this is 1911. He also might be Probably is. But this was kind of his style. It was like a higher pitched. He's known for like really belting it out, though. But you're not really getting in this song. But no, no, he's very like. It's more of a haunting melody. It is. He's like rounding over each syllable. That was that haunting melody. I didn't love it. It wasn't the best. By December of that same year, he had enough attention that Victor Records signed him to a recording contract. He would release his first ever recording, two songs from Vera Violetta, on December 22nd, 1911. I'm guessing that was one of them that we just heard. There weren't any charts or anything, like there was no billboard at this time, but historians have estimated that the recordings were just a humongous success. They definitely reached as far as Spokane, Washington, where young Bing Crosby fell in love with Al. That's where my grandparents are. Cool. That's where Bing Crosby is from. Here's one of these other songs called Rum Tum Tiddle. I am excited about that. <laughs> Hopefully it's more upbeat. He's making a stupid face. Oh, he's sort of a comedian. Mm-hmm. 
I heard Hello Girls somewhere at the beginning. In March of 1912, Jolson starred in yet another Broadway show called The Whirl of Society. And it would further skyrocket his popularity. In it, he introduced a blackface character named Gus, who would become his signature character. The show ran for a long time in New York, over 100 performances, before being taken on tour. Jolson stayed with the touring company and performed nationwide. This led to him being a star all over the country, not just in, like, Broadway. Just to talk a little bit more about Gus, who was such a hit, he was an African-American underdog who outsmarted his enemies while exchanging wisecracks with the audience. Sounds entertaining. Yeah. Gus was the perfect alter ego for Al. He was a resourceful survivor, and Al would fit him into pretty much every musical that he played in for the rest of his career. Like, if he was going to be in a play the writers would just have to write a Gus character into there. During this musical, Jolson started to include whatever songs he liked the best, and publishers became obsessed with getting him to sing their songs. Any song Jolson sang, because of the way he sang it, sounded like a hit. Aside from the musical, Jolson would also be the featured star of the Sunday specials that the Winter Garden Theater would put on. Because of strict blue laws, plays were not allowed to run on Sundays in New York. So... What is a blue law? Am I supposed to know what that means? Well, we talked about it back in vaudeville. Blue material was like... The bad stuff? Yeah, like any time a performer said something risque or slightly suggestive, I think it was Albie would give them a blue mark. So that material became known as blue material. And it was like the more racy stuff. So basically this, since Sunday is the Sabbath, they weren't allowed to perform on Sundays. So to get around that, the Schuberts would host a variety-type show at the Winter Garden Theater featuring performers in street clothes. So it wasn't really a play. (laughs) Jolson was normally last, and his 15-minute slot normally turned into at least 40 minutes. Yeah, 15 minutes is not very long. Yeah, because audiences loved him, so they would just keep demanding more encores. The Schuberts even built a platform that extended out into the crowd so that Jolson could sing and dance in the midst of the audience. That's pretty fun. Yeah. After taking the autumn off, Jolson started a new show, also appearing as Gus, called The Honeymoon Express. In it, he did something that no other Broadway star has ever dared to do. On opening night, Jolson, probably somewhere near the beginning of the show, turned to the audience and asked, do you want to hear the rest of the story, or do you want me? You told me about this! The audience chose him, so he turned it into an impromptu concert and sent the rest of the cast home. That is literally such a sucky move. (laughs) It is. Like, how freaking rude of all the hard work that everyone else put in. I would hate him. Also, how confident do you have to be to ask the crowd that? that No, how stuck up do you have to Mm be? Stuck up your own butt. That became somewhat of a Jolson trademark and would ultimately lead to him being given top billing in the show for the first time in his career. Yeah, because he made everyone (laughs) else go home! The crowd made everyone else go home. He gave them a choice. Uh, (laughs) I'm sorry. Also in the Honeymoon Express, Stupid. Jolson sang a song called You Made Me Love You, 
It was a sentimental song, and it marked the transition of Jolson being a comedian to being more of a singer. It was also the first hit song under his new contract with Columbia Records. Do you want to hear You Made Me Love You? No, I'm mad at him. Well, too bad you're going to hear You Made Me Love You. Okay. <laughs> Look at this stupid ass bass again. gonna be able to take this seriously because it's gonna be that sound and that face <laughs> and that story that you just told me. There were times when I'd laugh at you, but now I'm crying. It's very cool. No use denying. Yes. There's no other girl we'll do. It's better than his last time. You made me love you. I didn't think you All right. Good. That's the I first foray into being a real singer. In 1916, Jolson was playing three roles, one of them being Gus in a play called Robinson Crusoe Jr. It was the first time that he opened a play as the star. The Schubert's put his name above the title on the bill, which was the biggest indication that you were a bona fide superstar. <laughs> audiences, audiences came to see Jolson perform, and he gave them what they wanted. By this point in his career, the Broadway shows were more just a vehicle to hear more Jolson. The plot and the story didn't really matter at all. He would add and drop songs to the play whenever he wanted to. I hate this. He'd regularly dismiss the rest of the cast to perform solo. I hate this. He was recording whatever songs he wanted, and those records were always smash hits. The fact that he was a Broadway star didn't matter. He was an American superstar at this point. He's not a Broadway star. He's sending all the rest of Broadway (laughs) home. Just in his play. And his plays were always the most popular, so he was always the biggest on Broadway. When Al opened his eighth musical... It was at a theater in New York named after him, Jolson's 59th Street Theater. It seated 1,600 and was built and owned by the Schuberts. At age 35, he was the youngest man in American history to have a theater named after him. The play, named Bombo, (laughs) featured Gus as the servant for a modern-day explorer. During flashbacks, he became a slave of Columbus. I don't... I mean, like we said... The plot doesn't really matter. It's just a way to see Al Jolson perform. So, just might be weird, but who cares? Jolson was a man of strong contradictions. His performance and character on stage was all bravado, charm, and assurance. He was so confident in himself on stage. Yeah. But off stage, he was often a nervous wreck, especially on opening nights. He would have buckets placed in the wings for him to vomit into. Oh my gosh. On opening night for Bombo, Al was so nervous that he spent hours pacing the street outside. He begged the stagehands not to raise the curtain. Wow. But they did, and Jolson still stood, shaking in the wings, refusing to go out. So his brother Harry physically pushed him onto the stage. Oh my gosh. His performance was so good that it left the audience chanting his name. The night ended after 37 curtain calls. And all that after him not wanting to even go out because he was so nervous. That's crazy. They took the show on tour for a while before returning in 1923 to play the show at the Winter Garden Theater. A New York, a New York Times reviewer wrote, quote, He returned like the circus, bigger and brighter and newer than ever. 
Last night's audience was flatteringly unwilling to go home, and when the show proper was over, Jolson reappeared before the curtain and sang more songs, old and new. So the you have to be like a real people people pleaser to yeah. like just not leave yeah. after a show. Like, can you imagine if we got like modern day performers to do that? Yeah, be like Colony House. Oh my god, <laughs> my heroes! Six hours, six <laughs> hours. First hour, last hour was just as good as the first hour. Do not even get me started. <laughs> oh. Jolson's ninth musical, named Big Boy, <laughs> only ran for 48 performances before ending due to health problems. Sorry, I just... Big Boy. Yep. But later they would tour it through the end of 1927. Throughout all of this time, Jolson was still recording music and releasing records. Almost all of the records he released were hits. By all accounts, he was a much better stage performer than he was a vocalist, so seeing him perform live was still the dream. But being able to hear his records was still sensational for a lot of people who would like never have the chance otherwise. He had massive hits through the early 20s. In 1927, Jolson's life and pretty much the entertainment world in general would change forever. Warner Brothers released the first full-length movie with Sound, The Jazz Singer, starring Al Jolson. Yeah. The plot loosely followed Jolson's own life, the son of a cantor who turned to secular music despite his father's objections. It was adapted from a play that was adapted from a short story that was based on Jolson's life. That's insane. Yeah. The author of the short story saw Jolson in Robinson Crusoe Jr. years earlier and said, quote, I shall never forget the first five minutes of Jolson, his velocity, the amazing fluidity with which he shifted from a tremendous absorption in his audience to a tremendous absorption in his song. End quote. That's cool. The premiere was scheduled for October 6th, 1927, on the eve of Yom Kippur, to keep with the religious tension that was in the movie. And it was scheduled to premiere at Warner Brothers' flagship theater in New York, and it promised to be a momentous moment for the film industry. It would either launch the next phase of movies or be a colossal failure. Warner Brothers was in a precarious financial position, and they really needed it to succeed. Why did anyone think it wasn't going to work? Because it was a brand new technology. I mean, it's the same reason people thought streaming wasn't going to work. Like, it could just, audiences could show up and be like, the heck is this crap? And not care about it. Can you imagine if we didn't have streaming? Yeah, I know, right? I mean, like, I can't imagine it because I remember, but like... (laughs) Wow. Unfortunately... None of the actual Warner Brothers could attend the opening night of the film because one of them, Sam Warner, died the night before of the premiere. Holy cow. So the other three were in California at his funeral. Wow, that is so sad. Yep. A little ways into the film, Jolson's face appears on screen in a close-up where he delivers his trademark line, which is, wait a minute, wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. The crowd exploded after seeing that scene. They had seen and heard someone speak on film for the first time. They went bananas for it. The audience became hysterical when Jolson had a dialogue scene with another actor. Because, like, even though this movie was the first with, like, sound, it there wasn't a lot of it. So, like, this dialogue scene was one of the few that actually... It must have been, like, stupid expensive. Yeah. And before this, they did have, like, 
they would show movies and then have like a track playing right. along with it. So we, they would like you would see an actor lip syncing to a song, but this was the first one that had like the sound included in it and stuff. So I don't know, it went super technical and I tried to keep up and I it lost me. So Bummer. <laughs> whatever. After the movie, the audience turned into quote a milling battling mob that was just chanting Jolson's name over and over. That's Even not how it works. He's yeah, not there. He wasn't there. <laughs> They were just so enthralled with Al Jolson. God, I don't like this dude. I mean, I'm like simultaneously impressed and yeah. like disgusted. It's hard to not be impressed with Al Jolson just because like, like I can't think he of. He seems incredibly successful and like impactful. Even and like such a fan. Like, of course he's stuck up and whatever, but like it's, I can't, um, I don't know of any entertainer who's just this like ubiquitous in this like everyone is just enthralled with him and wants to see him and like i don't know it's crazy like he's just he was insane at that point like he was the best entertainer in the world but anyway the film was largely a critical success though not universally it showcased the potential for feature length talkies as they were called it was a commercial success but perhaps not as much as it should have been it hit a lot of theaters before they were able to play sound and film simultaneously. Oh, what's so, the point? <laughs> yeah, so it showed a silent version of it. It was Warner Brothers' highest earner up to that point, but it wasn't the top film of the year. But still, it was enough for Warner Brothers to like get out of their financial struggles. Pay for the funeral. Yeah. An actress in the movie couldn't stay away. She would sneak into theaters and watch the audience watch the movie. That's adorable. Yeah. And she wrote, quote, a miracle occurred. Moving pictures really came alive. To see the expressions on their faces when Jolie spoke to them, which is what some people call Jolson, Jolie. She's really lucky that it was like a recorded thing, so he <laughs> couldn't like kick her out. <laughs> she actually got to stay a part of the, of the yeah. piece. <laughs> to see the expressions on their faces when Jolie spoke to them, you'd have thought they were listening to the voice of God, end quote. Don't, don't, just girlfriend. No, see, that's not that's not because of Al Jolson. That's because they're hearing sound and film for the first time. You know, and he that thought was it just, was about him. That was just so like insane for them. Yeah, but he thought it was about. We him. played this before, at some point. But okay. here is the song "Mammy" from the jazz oh, yeah, singer. Yeah, totally. I don't remember when we did this before. Oh my gosh, I remember and his yeah his voice. Yeah, and the blackface. And the blackface. Yep. Because he looks motherflipping yeah. terrifying. So this guy is one of the creepiest looking dudes. At one point, he like drops down to his knee and starts like walking, and that was trademark Jolson too, like falling down on his knee and singing loud. All right, well, let's get to it. Let's close again. And also, my name is a song that's like. Was one of his signature songs too. Like it, I don't think it was for this movie. I think it was put in this movie because it was his signature song. So also, he like shimmies as he sings. There you go. All of this dude. The sunshine west, but I know where. This is bed. nightmare fuel. It's this guy is so horrible. This is terrifying. Nobody else is. My little mammy. 
my heartstrings are tangled around Alabama. And there's like a, Mammy, a I'm coming right through the audience. I hope I didn't make you wait. Mammy, He's coming, Mammy. I'm coming. Oh, God. I hope I'm not late. Mammy. Mammy. Don't you know me? It's a little baby. Mammy. You can kind of see. You can kind of see like the entertainment quality of like. Because he went from like being so in with the crowd and like down there and like drawing them in to like being up and like into the song and feeling that, which is what they were saying about him. He is, yeah, oh my Miami. gosh, the way the lights went out and you still yeah. saw like his lips. Oh. You're talking about Al kind of makes me want to do another bonus episode on Burt, Burt Williams, who was like the okay. first African-American star in the theater and stuff. Boom. And he also performed in blackface. Right. But he did it. It's weird. People are very torn on him because he did it as a way to like separate his onstage persona with his real life. So he was like, this isn't Burt Williams on stage. This is different. And then he kind of used it to like make subtle little inroads. The jazz singer was Jolson's official transition into film instead of performing on stage. His next movie was called The Singing Fool in 1928. It became the top-grossing film until 1939 when The Sound of Musical was released. The what? The Sound the Sound of Music was released. Did you say The Sound <laughs> of I Musical? I did. The Sound of Music. The hills are alive with the sound of musical. It literally was The Sound of a Musical. Despite the success of his first two movies, Jolson wasn't successful in film. The public kind of grew tired of musicals and his other movies that like weren't musicals weren't that great. Also, crooners yeah, cuz musicals are better. Period. Also, crooners were just starting to hit big, so his full voice style of singing wasn't as popular as like the kind of low smooth crooning style. He did return to Broadway for one show called Wonder Bar, but still kept making movies through the 1930s. He also landed a couple of radio shows during this time, but he stopped making records pretty much entirely. His last recording session was in 1932. By the end of the 30s, Johnson was pretty much, or Jolson, sorry, was pretty much retired. He still took a few small parts in movies where he played Is either. He what, 40 years old? Uh, yeah, well, 50. Okay. Because this is the end of the 30s, so it's basically 40, so. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. But he was pretty much retired. He still took a few small parts in movies where he played either himself or someone who was pretty much just based on him. This was probably because his popularity was waning and he was relegated to feature roles. Oh, no, not him. (laughs) He began to focus on radio shows as a guest star and hosting some of his own. In 1940, he made one last return to Broadway and played in the show Hold On To Your Hats. It brought him the success he hadn't seen in years because he was able to banter with the crowd like he used to. Despite excellent ticket sales, it closed due to Al Jolson's declining health. That fast. Then Pearl Harbor happened, <laughs> and it shook Jolson out of lethargy. Quote, He dedicated himself to a new mission in life. Even before the USO began to set up formal programs overseas, Jolson was deluging War and Navy Department brass with phone calls and wires. 
He requested permission to go anywhere in the world where there was an American serviceman who wouldn't mind listening to Sonny Boy or Mammy. And in early 1942, Jolson became the first star to perform at a GI base in World War II. Wow. So it was basically just like, send me wherever people want to hear me sing. Like, I will go and I will sing to any person in the Army who wants to hear me. Jolson gave an interview to the New York Times where he said, quote, When the war started, I felt that it was up to me to do something, and the only thing I know is show business. I went around during the last war, and I saw that the boys needed something besides chow and drills. I knew the same was true today, so I told the people in Washington that I would go anywhere and do an act for the Army. There's something admirable about doing what you know and yeah. what you can yeah. with I mean. using your talents in yep. whatever way you can. He wrote a letter volunteering, volunteering his services free of charge to help set up an organization to entertain American forces. This became the USO, which is still sending entertainers to American forces today. He was forced to stop in 1944 due to bouts of malaria and pneumonia. But before that, he took more trips overseas to entertain troops than anyone else. In 1946, Columbia Pictures released The Jolson Story, which was a film, and that was a major success. Why was it Columbia and not the Warner Brothers? <laughs> I don't know. Jolson wasn't allowed to play himself because he was too old. <laughs> But he provided the vocals that the actor lip-synced to That's cool. during the songs. That's fun. Yep. It became a sensation, mostly because of Jolson's rendition of two dozen of his hits. Before this, Jolson had to have part of his lung removed, which dropped his voice to more of a bass tone. Ooh. I Interesting. Imagine, I imagine like that change made the songs feel new to the people who had like grown up listening to these songs. So it was just kind of like a new take on them. I would l Do you have any of that? I don't think so. That would be so fascinating to hear the difference yeah. in tone after having partial lobotomy. That's crazy. You might have another one to hear. I don't know. Lobotomy is your head. Is it also your lungs, Luke? I don't know. These are questions that Mika asks oh. after <laughs> a drink and a half. <laughs> There's one distant shot in the movie of Jolson dancing to Swanee, which was one of his songs since no one else could accurately capture his style. So they let him dance even though he was old? Yeah, because no one else could dance like he could dance. So this movie put the 61-year-old Al Jolson back on top. A new generation was exposed to his stuff, and his record sales skyrocketed. He guest starred on a few major network radio shows, including with Bing Crosby, and in 1947 he returned to host the Kraft Music Hall which was a network show that he launched in 1933. After years of being treated as a has-been, his new popularity, popularity restored his zeal for life. He started dyeing his hair and stopped wearing his glasses in public. And he made a few songs that were actually hits. In 1949, Columbia made a sequel to the Jolson story called Jolson Sings Again. But after a tirade on set, Jolson was banned from the production. Oh my gosh. He still sang 16 songs on the movie, and people still loved it, but he wasn't allowed on set. He had offers pouring in, but put everything on hold to go sing for soldiers in the Korean War. There was no money to pay for his trips, so he financed it himself. After returning from performing 42 concerts in seven days, Holy cow. <laughs> he returned to California looking drained and exhausted, which, you know, yeah. 
He's a 60-year-old who just did almost 50 shows in a week. I think he's a type 3. <laughs> okay. On October 23rd, 1950, he was in San Francisco preparing for another appearance on Bing Crosby's radio show. He was playing cards with friends when he complained of indigestion. Doctors came and found him in bed. He joked and belittled his symptoms until he suddenly felt for his own pulse, said, quote, oh, I'm going, and then went limp. What? <laughs> what? That's the story. <laughs> Dramatic up until the time of death. He's Icon. All in. <laughs> what? The world's greatest entertainer had a massive heart attack and died at the age of 64. <laughs> I hate him and I love him. What the heck? I think that's the reaction you probably should have to Al Jolson. Drama queen. <laughs> I feel like when you're dying, you're allowed to be a little bit dramatic. I know, but it's just so on brand. <laughs> like yeah, he's like, it really oh, is. indigestion. So doctors come check him out, and then he's like, no, I'm fine. Don't <laughs> worry about little old me. Oh, you guys are showing me so much attention. <laughs> and then he's like, oh, bye. <laughs> I, I hope I do that, <laughs> babe. No, no I don't want to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> With my diet, I'm going long before you, so it's fine. I don't know. You exercise more <laughs> than I do. I stress myself out a lot more than you do, That's too. True. At his funeral, a longtime friend and sometimes nemesis. <laughs> oh my God. Because they, like, they were very competitive for roles at the time. Named George Jessel gave a eulogy and said, quote, And not only has the entertainment world lost its king, but we cannot cry. Oh, but we cannot cry. The king is dead. Long live the king, for there is no one to hold his scepter. Those of us who tarry behind are but pale imitators, mere princelings. I need to find a partial nemesis. <laughs> Sometimes nemesis. They were just competitive. They were. They did the same kind of stuff. They were the same sort of entertainer. Love so they were just so competing much. competing for like plays and movie roles and stuff. This is like this belong this belongs in a movie. Yeah. Like it does. I'm telling you, I love Al Jolson's so story. So theatrical. I like Al Jolson as a man probably wasn't the best, but I love his story. It's just so There's a fascinating. lot of ups and downs here. Yeah. Continuing continuing with his sometimes nemesis's nemesis. 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 It's only just one of him. Yeah, but like Nemesises. Possessive. Nemesis apostrophe S. Nemesis. It's like when you say Jesus and it's just. Jesus. It's just like. You just mumble the end of it. Yeah. Nemesis. <laughs> <laughs> so continuing, continuing that eulogy. Jolson was synonymous with victory. At the racetrack, at the ball game, at anything that he participated in, he would say, quote, I had the winner. Ha ha. Why didn't you ask me? <laughs> This was not in bravado alone. This was the quintessence of optimism. Whatever game you're in, whatever game you play, feel like you are the winner. That's profound. It is. <laughs> Whoa. George Jessel, man. 
Al Jolson absolutely must be remembered for his accomplishments in entertainment, but the man was incredibly contradictory and troublesome. We already talked about how he appeared so confident and arrogant on stage, but was a nervous wreck off of it. Which, he, honestly, like, that makes sense. Yeah. Like, he's overcompensating. Yeah. He also did... He needs affirmation. He also did what his wives would call yo-yo in his marriage. Did he have more than one at one time? No. Okay. I, I don't know what to he expect had, from him. He just had... I think he had three or four throughout his life. One day, he would be sweet and affectionate, sort of like his stage persona. And then, on other days, he would be emotionally and sometimes, maybe, physically abusive. Belittling and yelling at them in front of others. This was especially bad for his third wife during the 1930s when his career was in a tailspin. Yikes. He gave well over a million dollars to charity in his life, but often forgot to pay off loans to his friends. (laughs) Dude, this guy just does it for the spotlight, doesn't he? He would refer to himself as Jolson in business matters and Jolie in in personal matters which seems to indicate that he at least knew that he was, like, two different people, depending on who you were talking to. Is he also a Gemini? I don't know. <laughs> Is this a fella? Yeah, because we don't know his birthday, because they didn't yeah. feel like and it was I have no important information. At the height of his fame, he would audition new songwriters. He was called the world's greatest entertainer, so, of course, new writers wanted to work with him. He would change a few words in the songs so that he could get a share of the royalties. Like, he could then be a co-writer if he changed, like, three words. That's literally the worst. If anyone who happened to share the stage with him got roaring applause from the crowd, he would warn them not to let it happen again. Oh, my God. If it did happen again, that performer would be fired. I cannot. (laughs) He might be a Leo. (laughs) By all accounts, he was one of the most talented stage performers to ever live. He controlled and played to a crowd in a way that very few people ever could do and probably ever will do again. He had a performance style that was entirely his own and made him a sensation, but he could not stand competition. Despite his incredible talent and success, he was terrified of being upstage. He had, like, super deep insecurities that would make him a terror to work with. Because if anyone, like, challenged his positioning, he was just so afraid that people were going to think that that person was better than him, and he couldn't stand it. He's a headache. This is such a headache. It's kind of like, was it like Ella? Didn't go that extreme, but she also had deep insecurities that were like built on the audience approval of her. Jolson just took that to like... To an extreme. Yeah, very unhealthy extreme. But it seemed like Jolson was way more insecure than Ella was, too. So, like, he built way more into it. Yeah. Like, this is his whole identity. Yeah, exactly. He is not a person outside of this. No. Apparently, he would make desperate calls to his wife. All four of them noted the same kind of treatment, begging them to drop everything and come to him because he needed them so much. Oh, my God. When they did, he would welcome them with a curt hello before sending them back home. What? <laughs> Oh, well, here we go. What? According to some reports, he was constantly unfaithful to his wives and loved having chorus girls brought backstage to, quote, release stress during the intermissions. That was not helpful information. Well, you asked earlier what yo-yo, if yo-yoing meant he had multiple multiple at the same time, so. (laughs) We talked about that. But this is just according to some reports. Oh, my God. No, that 100% happened. I can't say it's that It's a power for sure. trip. Oh my gosh, it did. 
It did. Okay. It did. Whenever his wives had enough of being mistreated, ignored, and cheated on, they would file for divorce. This was when Al would become super affectionate and desperately try to rekindle the romance. Yes, because he's freaking abusive, but also coming from a place of needing to be, like, affirmed. Oh, my gosh, that's deep. But that didn't work, and I think all four of them ended up divorcing him. Good. At least the first three did, and I'm not sure about the fourth. He also had a volatile relationship with his brother, Harry. Some of that probably had to do with Harry getting tired of living in Al's shadow. Harry would often be billed as Al Jolson's brother, which had to suck. That would be pretty annoying. Harry wasn't as talented as Al, but I mean, like, no one was at the time. Mm-hmm. But Harry never admitted that. Their looks and mannerisms were similar enough for him to be always compared to Al. That sucks for Harry because, yikes. Yeah. <laughs> Harry. Got those circle lips. <laughs> Harry became Al's manager when Harry's vaudeville career eventually petered out, but he never actually did the work of a manager. That's funny. Al's just like, sure, I'll pay you, I guess. Harry survived Al by three years and made no secret of how much he resented Al for his success. But see, that I feel like that probably has a little bit to do with Al's character, but also just Harry being jealous, and because Harry wanted to be a performer too, so the fact that, like, his brother is the biggest performer the world had ever seen up to that point. And it was like, well, dang it. Like, I want that. So, Al Jolson was incredibly talented and he poured so much into pleasing his audiences to the detriment of his marriages and life in general. His onstage persona and performing were unlike anything America had ever seen. He influenced so many of the performers of the next generation and did things unlike anyone else. He had success in every performance vehicle he attempted, from stage to Broadway to radio to film to recordings. For a period of time in the 1920s, he truly was the world's greatest entertainer. What a whirlwind. (laughs) And that's why I love Al Jolson. Like, he's, I don't love him because I think he's a super great guy. I love him because his story is just so fascinating. And it's like, unlike anything else you're going to hear. Dramatic little dude like the more i read about him i was like oh yeah we gotta do an episode on this guy (laughs) this is insane i can't imagine not talking about this it's crazy and there's so many still like to this day you're gonna see so now that you know about al jolson you're gonna see so many al jolson references today really i like i see them prop up in like sitcoms every once in a while people will reference jolson or something and i'm just sitting there like i wonder how many people just don't get this I mean, I never get the nope. references. But now that you know him, so now you're going to get them. I'm going to get one that no one else gets unless <laughs> they listen to this yeah. podcast. Exactly. We can be the cool kids. Well, this is another long episode. We're going two hour-long episodes in a row. I have a correction corner. Oh, no. What's your correction corner? It's not a lobotomy. If it's a lung lobe, it is a lobectomy. Okay. That's what I had to look up because it was <laughs> bothering me. You know okay. I have to get my, my medical science right. I do. I did put out a poll on Twitter Ooh. asking who everyone else thought was the king of swing. And? So far, Benny Goodman is winning. and That's who I voted for, right? Yes. That's okay. who we both voted for. And No, I voted for... The butthole girl. I wonder what's inside a butthole girl. Yeah, but you actually voted for Benny Goodman. Did you include that as an option? No, because I did you not. should I put have. other as one, I think. All right, everybody. We can do a <laughs> write-in. But... We have gotten, like, one comment about it that pretty much agree with us. So, one of the guys at the Play Disc podcast, go go check them out. They were saying that, like, Count Basie 
he doesn't think of Count Basie as just a swing artist. Like he mm. thinks of him as more than that. Right. So, but Benny Goodman is swing. Is only swing. Yeah, like when you think Benny Goodman, you think swing. So like he kind of has to be the swing king because mm-hmm. he is the definition of swing. No, the definition of swing is a little bit more structured <laughs> form of jazz where <laughs> you dance. Surprise! you remembered that. Well, I didn't remember the structure part of it. It has it has the rhythm, and then it has the m- the melody, and then it has the one or two soloists. <laughs> yeah, good job. Thanks. All right. Well, well, that is our correction corner. If we mess anything up in this episode, let us know, and you will be added to the correction corner of the next episode. Woo-hoo. All right. Thank you guys for sticking like it out for n- another hour long episode. Go take a nap. They will be shorter next week when we're talking about crooners. And yeah, the next episode will be on Rudy Valley. Oh, fun. Yeah. It's not, I mean, Sinatra, but <laughs> whatever. We'll get to fine. Sinatra. I'm not salty. It's fine. Okay. Bye. Well, we're going to go rest from the story of Al Jolson. Have a good week. Yeah. See you babies next week. Call them babies. Yeah, everyone's Goodbye.